Hi, everyone. I'm David Williams, president of strategy consulting firm Health Business Group and host of the Health Biz Podcast, a weekly show where I interview top healthcare entrepreneurs about their lives and their careers. If you like this episode, I really hope that you will subscribe and have your friends do the same. My guest today is Dr. Reza Sinai. He is co-founder and CEO of Picasso MD. In today's episode, we'll focus on how his experience as a cardiologist seeing patients who were unnecessarily referred to him led him to build a new technology-enabled company to save all stakeholders money and time. Reza, welcome. Thank you very much, David. Nice to, nice to see you, and I appreciate the opportunity to uh, collaborate. Great. Well, I love what you're doing. So let's talk about how you got there. Uh, just starting off, kind of your background. You know, what was your what was your childhood like? Any any early influences that have, that have stuck with you for your career? Yeah, um, you know, pretty routine um, uh, childhood. I, I'm a first generation uh, American, so my parents came, emigrated from Iran, actually in England, where I was born, and then eventually to the U.S. Uh, in the early '70s, um, and that did kind of shape me in a little bit because. Uh, my mother and father separated. My father was a physician. He, he went back, back home, and so my mother, not speaking the language, became you know a seamstress, and uh, yeah. you know, so that did change my vantage point a little bit, just because it, it had a different connotation. A mother of a seamstress raising a, a, a child that always helped shape my work ethic. Um, my mother worked two jobs to raise me, and that always has stuck with me. That north star facing um, vantage point, and always working hard. Um, other basics, you know, I grew up in the North Virginia area and the D.C. Um, region. I had older siblings who are my idols. My brother is basically my idol. He's 14 years old than me. He's a physician, and I always wanted to be like him and continue to strive to be that way. And my sisters, you know, they live overseas in Paris. And so their influence with me with, through design thinking and through their work, that, that's kind of been my, like, if I was thinking about this, leading up to the podcast, it's really been my mother, my brother, and my sisters kind of influencing my lens as a whole. Yeah, no, that sounds good. Well, I grew up in the DC area too, in Bethesda. And um, I was uh, there in in uh, like 75. We had a lot of people coming over from Vietnam. I actually interviewed somebody on the podcast recently uh, for that. And then uh, 79, of course, there were a lot of folks uh, coming from Iran, 80 around then yeah, uh, as well. as exactly. memorable, memorable time. So. Um, I, li- I live in Bethesda now, so we- we- I should go visit your your, your child. Very nice, very nice. Yeah, my parents <laughs> my parents still live there, and actually, it was fifty years ago today that we moved there. As my dad was telling me, so uh, pretty pretty wait. interesting. So medical school, all right. So you had some influence that told you maybe to to do that. Did you did you know you wanted to go to medical school? Like, uh, did you hone in on that pretty yeah. early on? Or I was one of those kids. Yeah, my, my brother was was in medical school when I was a child. I was like, I, yeah. there's nothing else in my life that I want to be. Um, which is a blessing and, and a curse at, as, at the same time. You know, in life, being exposed to things outside of what you think you know, especially when you're a 10-year-old, and, you know, every 10-year-old thinks they know what they want to do. And I, I was like, oh, the, my, my only vantage point is that of being a physician. I can help it. You know, it's a safe profession, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, went, went into that vantage point very early on. Was fortunate enough to get into medical school. Did my training here in the D.C. region at George Washington University. And then basically stayed on after meeting my wife, who was also a physician, stayed on for residency and my fellowship was a chief fellow there until transitioning to my uh, local practice here in the DC region. So cardiology, was that also, did you know that about that when you were 10 too, or how did that, when did that come in? No, I'm just really not that smart, honestly. So like <laughs> for me, it's, it's, 
I can't memorize things. I have a visual memory, but I, things have to be organized. You know, one plus one equals two, two times two equals four. I can follow that logic, but just to give me brute memory was never my thing. And cardiology is a very logical field. It, yeah. You, know, you can, so, it, so it, it just fit naturally. And it, I always wanted to, to think that my work was going to make a significant impact and cardiology checks that box as well. So no, it, it was just because I was decent at it and it fit my brain and my my limitations and it was it was uh, a check the box of, of impact so that, that's why i went into cardiology okay that's a good logical reason i think that's uh to make sense and sounds like you're, you're a local practice for for a while but at some point you had an inspiration and needed to start picasso md so what what was that inspiration you know i was you know i've always been um trying to believe that i have been a value-based provider and a provider and patient advocate so you know when when i always look back on this one of the things that I just realized recently is when part of it is social and just my lack of job satisfaction. So I went to cardiology, became co-managing partner of a practice and had a decent um, livelihood. But what I realized is every day I would go in and I would see 20 patients and I would just live in my world of 20 patients. I would maybe would see a colleague in the hallway. I write my notes and I'd go home, copy and paste. You get a fax referral, see my patients, go home. No interaction with my colleagues. And over time, what I was seeing was in my office, and I actually did an internal audit, eight out, of my, eight out of my 20 patients were either for, you know, bounce off of emergency room, which I was like, God, I wish they had just pinged me. Yeah. There's no need for that patient to have been sent to the emergency room. Or for cases which I understood why they were sent, but honestly, probably didn't need to be sent to me directly. So more out of kind of like just wanting to, to practice different type of medicine, I went to a very large practice. It was about seven or eight offices they had a all hands meeting and i went over there with my buddy will and i said hey will i want to come and give you a little talk and i went over there and i said listen i know this sounds odd but i want to do a little trial for three months yeah. and it's going to be er zero and from now on anytime any one of your providers have a question you're going to ping me big or small if you especially if you're going to send someone to the emergency room ping me i'll get them over right away we can avoid the er visit you know and and let's see how that goes so Fast forward, three months go by, and, and Will comes by and goes, Reza, you won't believe this. Goes, What's <laughs> up? He goes, our ER rates, yeah, he goes, zero for cardiology. Our cardiology referral rates, down 44%. And at the beginning, I, I, I actually didn't understand what he was saying because my volume had tripled during that yeah. same time frame. Okay. So I was like, how is it possible we're actually decreasing overall referrals but yet my referrals are going up and, and it created aha moment of sorts where by just being a decent person and being available we're avoiding unnecessary care or avoidable health care yeah. but by being available and by being a decent provider at the same point there was, was creating bridges of trust and as a result of that they felt comfortable sending me patients over so that's when I had this general concept of, well, if one provider can make an impact, you know, somewhat of an impact for 40 PCPs, what if we could take this concept and scale it, where if a provider at the point of care had a question, a cardiology question, they could hit a button and get matched with a cardiologist, a GI question, get hit a button and get matched with a gastroenterologist, derm, ortho, et cetera. If we could create that real-time collaboration, wouldn't that result in better decision-making, 
reflexively less ER visits and, and probably less specialist referrals for those borderline cases. And that, that's kind of what we created. We created a model where one aspect of what we do is create this real-time clinical decision support you know, across 30-plus disciplines at this point. And then we, the second question is, you know, well, great, I don't need to send a patient to emergency room for this heart rhythm disturbance, but what if I, um, where do I send them? So part two is, okay, don't send emergency room, but send them here. Yeah. And then actually operationalizing that transition from, from a PCP office to a local value-based specialist. Sounds so str- simple, you know, you have a way of kind of like keeping it, dumbing it down so that we can understand it. And, uh, but we know the healthcare system doesn't work like that in general. It's literally that simple. Just yeah. if you can create a process of communication, streamline it, create redundancy in that workflow. So like in, in, in general, we have six layers of, of logic, but in the end, there's always a network available to answer questions. Yeah. And then, and then we work with local specialists, empowering them. Despite what people think, most docs are out there, even though they live in a fee-for-service world, who want to practice at the top of their license, who want to do the right things. And all we're doing is enabling that and to do so. And as a result, there's a demand side where a provider wants, doesn't know where to send a patient. There's a supply side. There's a provider who's willing to help out. And all we are really is just an intermediary that matches the two. It's interesting on the um, emergency room side. It really is, I think, in general... And when somebody ends up in the emergency room, typically a, a failure. You know, if someone's in a car crash or something like that, or they're having a, you know, an MI, presumably they need to go to the emergency room. But sure. a lot of times it's just, you know, even if you call, if you call uh, the doctor's office at 501, or even if it's just on hold, it says, you know, if this is an emergency, hang up and dial 911. They're going to take you to the emergency room, which is probably not where you need to be. And what's interesting is there's, there's clearly the demand is there. I think what's a little bit new to me is you're saying, hey, the supply is there too. Actually, that resource is available, that expert resource to answer the question in the moment is also available if you organize it right. Yeah, 100%. If, if you think about it, I, as a cardiologist, in 10 years of practice, literally sent eight patients ever to the emergency room. And they were for like real emergencies. Everything yeah. else I could handle in my office, right? Yeah. And I appreciate as a primary care provider, they're not going to want to deal with things that I don't necessarily need to send emergency room. But if instead of forcing that decision onto a PCP, if I could just say, hey, here's a cardiologist who can help out, well, then, you know, 999,000 times we can avoid the ER and say, don't send them to the ER, just send them right over. And it's good for the specialist because, one, it's building a bridge, it's building yeah. a bridge of relationships with the PCP. But simultaneously, it's instead of that patient being sent to the emergency room and lost forever, we're actually rerouting them to that specialist so that they can actually capture that patient. So it's, it's creating a win-win-win proposition, win for the PCP specialist and, and the patient themselves. And then the, and then the cardiologist presumably is now maybe going to have uh, the time to focus on the patients that actually need to be there in the cardiologist office exactly. as opposed to went to the emergency department and ones that didn't need to be referred to you in the first place. They don't have to come. Exactly. And so if, if we can eliminate, to a certain extent, cases that don't need to be seen in my office, open those slots up for higher acuity patients, Yeah, there's, plen- there's plenty of volume. That's never been a, a, an issue. It's, it's really just curating that volume and making sure the right patients are getting to the right specialists at the right time. So Picasso is a nice name. How did you uh, decide that was going to be the name of the company? Yeah, well, it's... Um, Again, it's a, I'm a simple man. So uh, I always tell people, 
80% of what we do as providers is science. I mean, we went to school, we read it, and we, we generally can come up with an assessment of plan that's accurate. But the true art is conveying that in a way that the patient internalizes and believes and the PCP or the, you know, the initiating provider internalizes and believes. If David walks into my office and I'm completely dismissive, dismissive to you about your chest pain and you walk out of my office feeling like I didn't listen to you, even if I was accurate in my diagnosis, it's useless. It's that ability, that last 15, 20%, which is the key that allows us to kind of convey real medicine. And so Picasso MD, the famous artist, art of medicine, or Yeah, sounds good. So let's talk about what the system is like for those that are in it. So as a, as a patient, like what might my experience be? I'm going to, I'm going to go to my primary care physician. I'm going to say I've been having, you know, whatever, whatever kind of symptoms I'm going to, I'm going to describe. And then how does it feel different to to me as the, as that patient? Yeah. The beauty is you're a primary, you're a patient and you can walk into any clinic, primary care office, urgent care, retail clinic, even to your, you know, virtual primary care, the entry point is the same. And and, and as the healthcare landscape changes, the entry point doesn't matter. So you walk into your primary care office and listen, I'm having some chest pains and I'm not not feeling too comfortable. If you boil it down, whether you're an MD at a high value practice in DC or a nurse practitioner in rural Mississippi, in that moment, you have three choices to make for that patient. You can diagnose and treat them, get the EKG, know exactly what's wrong with them, send them home. Or you can say, listen, I'm a little bit uncomfortable about the symptoms, or I'm not completely sure what to do with this EKG. I'm not overly worried, but I'm going to send you out to cardiology. Or you say, listen, I'm not dealing with this. I'm not comfortable with this EKG at all. David's presenting with you know, chest pain. I'm sending to the emergency room. And so as a provider, instead of being forced to make a decision, it literally is an app, mobile or web, and they hit the Picasso MD app, step one. They hit, you know, this, we call it the magic blue button, the first available curbside button, step two, choose cardiology, and then, they, and then they get matched. And about on average, actually last month, our median time to connectivity was 22 seconds. So as a provider, you say, hey, David, I'm going to run your case by a, cardi- a cardiologist. Now, and then there is a dictated or, or, or typed message. We attach images, obviously, all through a SOC 2 certified application. But there's real-time connectivity and collaboration and synchronous communication regarding the case. So within, on average, six or seven minutes, the communication is ended. And the provider can say to David, hey, David, listen, I ran, I ran your EKG in case by a cardiologist. You know, overall, the pattern is not concerning for anything acute. So we're, gonna, we're not going to send the emergency room. But given your risk factor profile, the best next steps is to go ahead and send you over to cardiology. You should receive a text in the next 30 seconds with the referral information for the cardiologist. And so now, as a patient, even if there's not a final answer to your chest pain, you know, you still don't know if it's cardiac or not, that information helps reframe your anxiety around this. There's also directionality. You know why you're being sent to cardiology. And the next step has already been mapped out for you. So that, that as a patient, hopefully is a, a different world compared to what I've experienced as a, you know, as a consumer of the healthcare system or my wife, where yeah. you literally are living in silo and you're given an appointment date 12 weeks from now. Right. So, okay. So then 
uh, this cardiologist is going to be the, the first available. So the one that they, the PCP does the consultation with is probably not the one that the patient's going to be referred to. Is that right? Or is there some connectivity there as well? No, there is connectivity. So we always prioritize, always, local first. Yeah. And so we have literally, like, like I said, six layers of logic. One through five is all based on provider preferences, local providers, people who have been identified as high value specialists and just prioritizing the platform. I mean, meaning yeah. I in DC, 97% of those communications are handled within the DC market. Yeah. 3% of the time does it leave the DC market for, for, for that just real time clinical decision support. And so it's always that prioritization of local providers within that, that algorithm that allows it to be matched to that specialist and sent usually. So, um, yeah, we always try to reinforce the existing network. And only if they're not available, does someone help pinch it just for the clinical decision support. But the, at the time of the referral, still goes local, obviously. Okay. So then you mentioned that the, the patient then knows you know, why they're being referred. Now, there's also the other side of it, which is typically the specialist, when you get there, has no idea why you're there. And, and even if it sounds like there's a whole bunch of communication that's gone on, it usually hasn't. So do you address that issue? Yeah. And I, we, I just, we can verify that I did not plant this question. We no, have not met. That's right. A few minutes ago, but yeah, exactly right. So problem one is what do I do with this patient? ER, do I send them out or do I send them home? Right. And that's, and if the decision is made to refer, then what that exact problem is the next step. I, as a cardiologist, when you sent, when I received a patient, when I walked into the office, I had no context of why you were there. Yeah. I had no idea who sent you. I would say, hey, David, nice to see you. Uh, who sent you and why are you here? And you right. were like ready to stab because like you've been waiting six yeah. weeks because of this abnormal EKG and I had no context. So to solve that, it's pretty straightforward. There's two levels of people who need to have visibility into the referral. The provider and the back office. And so all we do is we, when a referral is sent to the platform, it automatically notifies the specialist. And so when I see my friend Will sent me a patient, I obviously am going to receive that referral. I want to check in on that referral. And then all we do is create accounts for the back office as well. And we create these like almost Slack-like communications so that the PCP and specialists have direct visibility into the referral and can communicate back and forth regarding it. The specialists can communicate directly with their back office staff. So when I get a referral and I see patients on Saturdays, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll message directly into, into the referral. Hey, cardio care team, you know, please get this patient in ASAP, um, double book for 815 on Saturday. And that's automatically getting passed back to the back office of the PCP as well and to the provider. And so simply by surfacing referrals, giving status updates to those referrals, at the provider and back office level and creating communication channels around it, it, it allows for a more seamless transition. So you started off with this, you know, proof of concept with your friend showed that, you know, things could work out. How does it work from a, a business standpoint? Because some of, some of these things have to do with, you know, even if people want to do the right thing, the providers, sometimes uh, it, it's, you know, they can't do it and stay in business or it's, you know, really working against their own interests or there's some other rules or things that, that get in the way. So, what do you do kind of on the business side? You mentioned value-based providers and, you know, is, is sort of a move toward value-based care enabling you to do what you're doing and vice versa? Or how, how do these things all come together? Right. So 
I'm going to paint you a picture for in, a, in a value-based world and also paint you a picture in a fee-for-service world. So we, our, our general partners are risk-bearing entities, so payers, you know, ACOs, advanced primary care groups, entities that are trying to enable their primary care network to execute in value-based arrangements. And what we're, we're simply doing is helping them execute in those value-based arrangements. One is if every time we avoid the ER visit, we're saving you know, $1,300. Every time we send a specialist referral, it's actually saving, if you include downstream costs, et cetera, several hundred dollars. That by itself is a value prop. And then the second concept is if we can help build networks locally and kind of surface really high quality specialists and create directionality and efficiency of getting a patient from point A to point B, that also layers in an additional layer of savings as well as efficacy and care. So that's what allows us to kind of partner with these paid partners who take on the payment, keep things free for the PCP, keep things free for the specialist. The PCP is actually in the end financially going to do better because they're saving and the specialists end up doing better because now we have data and metrics supporting their cause and they're creating pipelines of, of referrals to them. So that's value-based. It, it, literally, we are aligning ourselves with the payers, PCPs, and specialists, so it's a win for all. And for those that are in the fee-for-service world, again, one of the key, you know, when I started my practice, I went out and knocked on doors, said, hey, here, here's my name, my, here's my business card, here's my mobile number, call me if you ever need me. That's how I built my practice, like literally. Yeah. And then when they came to me, I was just a nice guy and did the yeah. right things and would circle back to the PCP. As a specialist, just by being available, affable, and able, we are creating a, a digitized version of actually scaling that availability, creating increased visibility for the local providers, and creating a network so that they feel like the PCPs know that the specialists on the platform are, are there to kind of help. And, and that's what creates this ethos. You know, it's not about Picasso. It's really about being part of that thought process, that that cultural north star that by improving connectivity, improving communication, improving transitions of care, we can actually make an impact on all levels. So, uh, you know, you mentioned the incredible results that you had early on with the kind of the pilot, informal pilot. What sort of results do you get at scale? And to what extent can you replicate that? And then what things can you actually enable? Because you've got a, a bigger scale. Yeah, and it's, um, it's crazy. The data hasn't changed. Like I, I used to fixate on it like daily, yeah. now I fixate on it weekly. But you know, eighty-eight percent reduction in ER rates, so nearly ninety percent reduction in ER rates, and near fifty percent avoidable referrals. And then the referrals themselves are average time to consultation is about eight days. Yeah. Again, it's it's if you take if you create collaboration, it makes sense that if. A provider has a borderline case for abnormal EKG, for instance, for pre-op, but there's no symptoms, there's no findings, and the EKG is no, actually a normal variant. That, that patient could be avoided. So as a whole, it's about 88% reduction in ER rates. Like I said, near 50% reduction in referrals, and, and the time to consultation is about 7 to 10 days, depending on the market. And, that, and the ability for a provider to literally download the app and within five minutes have you know, a virtual multi-specialty clinic in their pocket like that's kind of a, a game changer. Like you download the app. Yeah. Literally five minutes later, you can hit a button and get matched with a specialist. 
especially in, in parts of the country that this is where we take pride in. You know, we built, actually came out with a little health equity piece about this, that in rural populations that are um, specialty des have specialty deserts or in underserved populations, especially in community health centers, the ability for those providers to actually have access to specialists in real time instead of waiting 10 months for a referral to go to a neurology, I think has in some ways changed the landscape, especially in that population. Very interesting. So how much traction have you gotten up to this point? Where does the company stand in its life cycle and where are you trying to get to in the next year or two? Yeah, we're still early on. You know, we started off with three providers in DC and now we're, yeah. you know, you know <laughs> several hundred in DC and now I've expanded beyond DC. So I think we're at seven or eight markets now, uh, including, uh, you know, Virginia, Maryland, North Carolina, Mississippi, Georgia, Texas, Florida. And, and the goal is by the end of next year, we'll be actually probably closer to 20 markets um, and closer to about 5,000 total providers on the platform. So, you know, we've been fortunate enough that thankfully things are, we're, we're executing on our, our, our talk. I, I always say stop talking and just do. Yeah. And so our, our major focus you is really start turning. Kind of, to, you have to turn down the podcast interviews if you're going to do that though. No, it's all about the ecosystem, my friend. I, okay. I will never turn that down. It's about the larger room. So right now we're just, it's about, thankfully, we've expanded within our partnerships that we've already established and kind of just growing that. So hopefully about 20 markets by the end of next year. Nice. Now with all that you're doing, do you have any time for reading any, any books and do you have anything to, uh, to recommend? I, I do read, uh, I try to read about 30 minutes a, a day at a minimum. I'm rereading a book that I really love uh, about by Moore, Crossing the Chasm, which is really talking about the different personalities and kind of getting users at different, with different mentalities to kind of adopt technology. And I just started uh, by Chen, uh, The Cold Start Problem. These are old books, old ubiquities, yeah. um, again, about network, network build and kind of getting people over pattern recognition initially and getting engagement. So those are the two books that I'm reading now. Oh, those sound good. It's good to have the older ones because that means that I could find it in the library, you know, or even online in the library and get an ebook exactly. uh, and download it as opposed to having to wait a long time. Well, Dr. Reza Sinai, co-founder and CEO of Picasso MD, I want to say thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Biz Podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you for your time. You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare business and policy. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come, and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.